Uh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you all for listening on Facebook. If that's where you're listening, my name is Justin Crow. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission, and I get to preach sometimes, and every time I'm excited to do so. So again, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. However you are getting this this morning, uh, thank you and welcome. If you have your Bibles or devices, go ahead and turn with me to the, the text on the screen, Exodus chapter 7. We will pick up from where we left off last week and, and jump in in uh, verse 14, uh, but we've, we've got a little bit of context before we get exactly there. Uh, but today's sermon is titled, if you're into titles and you want to write that down, or if not, that's okay, it's on the screen, is Plagues and Promises. We will look through some of these plagues. We're not going to get through all 10 today. We're going to get through the first four that we see in chapter 7 and chapter 8. So we're going to cover the rest of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8. But if you have been traveling with us through Exodus, we've come a long way. We've come from a basket in the Nile to a, a mansion or, or the temple in which Pharaoh would live all the way back to the desert. And then now we're all the way back in Egypt again as Moses has been sent and commissioned by God by the burning bush itself to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. So last week we peered into kind of the first moment of that confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. We see God sent Moses with this message and then we learned last week that as he gave him this sign of throwing the staff on the ground and the, becoming a snake, that the magicians and the dark arts and the, the demonic powers were able to duplicate that. So there were three snakes, at least, I guess, on the ground. And But we see in the, another instance of God flexing his muscles and, and having his authority over those powers that Aaron's snake eats the other snakes. And that's what we looked at last week. This section of scripture is what last week is where we first saw a phrase that we will see over and over and over again in Exodus and in, in all honesty in a lot of places in scripture, but especially through Exodus. We see it in verse 5 of chapter 7. We see God tell Moses that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. We see this refrain dozens more times, something to the effect of, so that they will know, so that you will know, but it is always so that someone will know that God is the Lord, that God is Yahweh, that God is the God of all gods. And that's where we're kind of stepping into this morning. See, God is showing the Egyptians who have all of these gods and the Israelites. You have to understand Look at the rest of Exodus. They need reminders over and over and over again who God is and what He is doing. And God mercifully, remember that word, mercifully reminds the Israelites as they constantly doubt Him and constantly question Him. And Why did you take us out here? And why are you doing this? And why aren't you doing this? And this is a reminder that if we are honest, we need these reminders as well. This is why reading through these ancient stories is helpful because it reminds us that we are far more like the Egyptians and far more like the Israelites than we care to admit. But I also want to contend to you that these plagues starting today are also a serving that same purpose for the Egyptians. It is also merciful that God does this. It's not only punitive. Is there some punishment involved? Yes. But it is also a mercy that God reveals himself in these ways. As a matter of fact, we have to get all the way to the third plague before God spares the Israelites the effects of it. And we'll see that in today's text. Now, is there an element to punishment? Absolutely. 
Okay, especially when you get to the 10th one, and then beyond that, you see God, God's wrath being poured out specifically on the Egyptians. But God, in His immense mercy and grace, is also revealing who He is to these Egyptians, to Pharaoh himself, to all of these people. And I want something to come through loud and clear this morning. Any time in the history of the world, any time that God reveals to anyone at any time in their life, that they are worshiping a God that is not Him, and He reveals Himself to them instead of smashing them into the ground, is a mercy. That is mercy that God is doing that. We, we deserve wrath. We as mission church, we as Christians, we as the individuals deserve this wrath. We deserve death. We deserve to receive the full brunt of God's anger. And yet... God reminds us over and over again in our own lives when we forget it or when we neglect it or when we ignore it that He is God and that He is pursuing His people and His will will be done. See, God is answering a very legitimate question that we've seen earlier in Scripture. If you look back a page or two, probably in your Bibles, Exodus 5 is when Moses goes to tell them that the Lord has commanded them to let His people go. Now remember, the Egyptians had all kinds of gods. It's not that they were lacking any gods, and they were like, oh, who is this God you speak of? He, he is asking a very legitimate question. They had plenty of gods, but remember the sermon on God's name, the I am who I am, that when you see the Lord in all capital letters, it is saying Yahweh. It is using God's formal name that he gave himself, that he said, this is who I am, if you remember that sermon. Now look back at Exodus 5, read in verse 1, and we're going to insert that. After Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh answers them. And look what word he uses as well. But Pharaoh said, all caps, Who is Yahweh? Who is this God that I should obey him and let these people go? Now, we look at this as sacrilege because we have the whole Bible. How dare he ask who the Lord is? How dare he ask who Yahweh is? How dare he ask who God is? But remember, they've got all these gods. They worship from sunup to sundown sometimes because it's you got to worship the God of the morning, then you got to worship the God of second breakfast and the God of whoever else you got lunch and dinner and all of that, right? And we're like, man, I prayed for lunch. But I really had to pray for dinner. I thanked him for my food. They're worshiping all day long, okay? So... He's not saying, I've never heard of the word God. I've never heard of a being higher than me. They do this all the time. What he is saying is, look, you're telling me about a new God. If he's really worthy of worship, I want to do that. I don't want to be caught up in that and not doing it correctly. We see this in Acts 17 as well, but we won't go into that today. But people want to make sure if there's a God that could get them, they want to worship them right. So Pharaoh asks a legitimate question. I have all of these gods. You're telling me about Yahweh. Tell me more and why I should listen to him because he's telling me something I really don't want to do. I really don't want to let these people go. They're kind of serving me and doing well here. So, so today, we will see God graciously and mercifully answer that question or start to answer that question as he reveals to all of Egypt, all of Israel, and to us exactly who he is and why he is superior to these false gods. He's answering the question. Pharaoh wants the answer. So this is the context in which we are stepping into today. A very worshipful society that don't have a worship problem, they have an object of worship problem. 
And God in His grace, instead of wiping them out immediately and indiscriminately, as He should do, as He could do, is going to show them so that they will know that He is the Lord. So let's turn our attention there. We're going to read big chunks of Scripture today, not all of it at once, but chunks as we go. So the plague, number one, verse 14 in chapter 7. Read along with me, please. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go tell Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, all of their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. The fish in the Nile died, the Nile stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all of the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house. He did not... Take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the, after the Lord had struck the Nile. So we see today this, the first of the ten plagues. It's pretty straightforward. There are a few things we want to point out here, though. First, something that is probably lost in our culture and our understanding and, and so many years later is just how important the Nile River was to the Egyptians. It, was, it, it itself wasn't God to them, but it was life. It was life to them. The Nile was revered in every way. There's an old Egyptian hymn that's recorded. It says, Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. Life to them was found in this river. It was revered, and not only that, but there were multiple gods specifically for the Nile. There was new in you. The God of life in the river. Think of King Triton and the Little Mermaid. I have a daughter, that's right. There's Noom. It starts with a K. Apparently it's silent. Apparently that weird phenomenon started long ago. The God of the Nile. K-H-N-U-M. And then there was Sobek, my favorite one. He was a crocodile god, that's right, who allegedly formed the Nile with his sweat. Now, y'all think sermon prep is all this theologians and stuff. I googled, do crocodiles sweat this week as sermon prep. They don't. Uh, the, most so I don't the most important of these Nile gods, though, was happy. Hoppy, but I'm going to say happy because it's ironic. H-A-P-I, happy. I was going to show a picture of them like uh, Pastor Eric did last week because I thought it would be helpful. None of them are appropriate with children in here, really. It is a bearded man with a female body and a pregnant belly, which 
is actually not as odd as it would have been 10 years ago. People, there's probably times where you're like, oh, I've seen that at Walmart. Anyway, um, he, w- he, was the, <laughs> he was the God of the flood, but was also a fertility God. So you have a combination here that makes this dude, dude very important. He's a now God, which is life to them. He's a fertility God, which is future life to them. He is doubly important. Songs were sung to him such as this. Hail to your countenance, happy, who creates every sort of good thing. Everything that has come into being is through his power. Sounds like songs we sing to our God. Everything was created by you. Everything that is good comes from you. All of these things were sang to this God as well. Now, why does this matter? Remember the question God is answering. Who is this Yahweh that I should listen to him? And God answers, well, you listen to happy, don't you? Watch this. Look at what I do to him. Look at what I do to what he's in charge of. Look at what I do to his domain or his dominion. The Nile turns to blood. But look how it is described. Look how widespread it is described. It says that even the water in the vessels of wood and stone turned to blood. Now, interestingly, in the original Hebrew, the word vessels is actually not in there. So it would have read, even, in wa- even the water in wood and stone. In other places in Scripture, we see the term wood and stone referred to as idols and idol worship. In Deuteronomy 28.64, God pronouncing wrath over his disobedient people says, And the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone which neither you nor your fathers have known. Four other times just in Deuteronomy alone, that exact term, wood and stone, is referred to as idols. It is believed that the most devout Egyptians would have washed their little trinkets every morning because the gods can't get dirty. So whether they're little, big, whatever, they would dip them in water and wash them. Now imagine they're literally having to wash them in blood The blood, the very blood that God just took and made, that they used water for everything, and now it is blood that is usable for nothing. If anything, it's making the gods dirtier. It is making them less valuable. It is making them less clean. And right there you would think that would be enough. Pharaoh would be convinced. Oh, (laughs) you just turned a gazillion gallons of water into blood, and not just that's in the, the river, all over our country. But here's the thing, the magicians were able to duplicate this one as well. It is worth noting quickly that the magicians were only ever able to duplicate what God has done and imitate on a smaller scale, never able to undo anything. Now, if they had been like, now to blood, watch this, water, that would have been different. That would have maybe changed the course of this whole story, but they couldn't. Just like last week, they didn't do anything other than they made the snakes, but they got eaten. So they weren't able to undo anything. But do you see the irony here? In one second, God has created a severe water shortage in Egypt. And their answer to thwart God's plan is to make it worse. We found this little bit of water. Turn that to blood too. Gotcha. No, you didn't. You, ju- you literally just made it worse. This would be like the magician cutting the woman in half and actually cutting her in half. Be like, magic. See? Look at that. It's... This just shows us Satan's power, though. It's self-defeating. 
It is self-defeating. He thinks he's winning. He thinks he's proven a point. He thinks he's doing something. And this is just God even using the power of Satan for his glory, for his purposes. We see this most clearly at the cross. Satan thinks he's winning. I got him. I'm killing Jesus. And that is the exact pathway in which we walk in order to be saved. Using Satan's power against him. Now look at verse 24. What were the Egyptians doing? Digging a small ditch beside the Nile to find water to drink. And instead of that being a wake-up call to turn to God, they just moved the goalposts. Ah, that's good enough. We can get a little bit of dirty water out of there. It's not blood anymore. It's dirty water. They settle. They make do. And this is us. This is the lesson for us today. We settle. Jesus offers us a full and abundant life in Him, but we would rather have a rich and comfortable one. He offers us a seat at His table, a room in His Father's house. We settle for food on our own table and a roof over our head, and we call it good enough. Jesus offers us true life. We settle for the American dream. This is good enough. This plague shows that the gods we revere so much are worthless. And we don't call them gods because we don't wash them in a basin full of water. But we protect them like that, don't we? This, this so-called life source, whatever it is for you, it only leads to death. And this is what God is showing here. The promise of Jesus that he offers in the gospel what does he tell the woman at the well? Drink of this water. I am the living water and you will never thirst again. Never again will you be digging a ditch beside the river. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The promise here in the midst of this plague is that while serving counterfeit gods, while settling for good enough, may sustain temporarily, only Jesus sustains forever. Only Jesus satisfies forever. Don't settle for a ditch beside the Nile. Anybody ever been to Lost River Cave to the waterfall? Now imagine someone coming back from Niagara going, I just had the greatest vacation. We went to Niagara Falls. It was awesome. There was all this water. It was great. There's just millions. Of, and you're like, yeah, I've been to Lost River. I've seen it. It's the same. That's what these Egyptians were doing. And that's what we are doing when we settle for money, for power, for sex, drugs, and rock and roll, whatever it is, instead of Jesus. That is what we are settling for. Don't settle for a counterfeit God when you can have Jesus, the one true giver of life. Yet, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, which God told us would happen, but even still, sometimes we're like, I thought that might work. It doesn't. This brings about the second plague. Read along with me, starting in chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people, into your ovens and your kneading bowls. That's right, everywhere. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and all your servants. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools. Make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. 
Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and your servants and your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like our God. There are the magic words. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses, your servants, and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. All right, look, snakes I get. Don't even like talking about them. We're done with that. Millions of gallons of blood. I even get that because it's a life source. You got to have the water. Frogs, really? Like, every time I read this, I'm like, when I was a kid, that is, I was like, these are just random plagues. It's like God was just like, well, I got these extra frogs. Here you go. Like, I don't know what to do. Again, even though the story is straightforward, frogs were threatened. You didn't do what I said. Here are your frogs. That's the story. But as always... God is doing something very specific here. The goddess Heket, which I could show a picture of because it's fine, but I didn't show the first one. Anyway, the goddess Heket was actually the wife of the silent K Num god, the god of the Nile. They were in Egypt, Egypt mythology married. It was believed that Num would fashion human beings on his potter's wheel just like ghosts if you're a 90s kid. Okay, Patrick Swayze is Num. To me more, it, never mind. All right, the goddess Heket would breathe life into them. This is what they believed. This is why she was worshipped. And what, you may ask, does Heket look like? Is she a beautiful woman? No, she's a frog. So, always, Heket is pictured with a frog head. Always. Now, sometimes she's pictured with a frog body. Sometimes she's not. But she is always a frog. She was so revered as a goddess that it was literally against Egyptian law to kill frogs. And then God sent them millions. James Boyce points out the irony of this. The frog was sacred in Egypt. So sacred it could not be killed. So there was nothing they could do about the ironic proliferation of their goddess. They were forced to loathe the very symbol of their depraved worship, but could not kill what they hated. So we see this gets so bad, they hate them so much but can't do anything about it, that Pharaoh finally says, fine, go, just take these frogs away. Pray tomorrow that God will take them away. And he even says, Moses, that so that you may know that no one is like the Lord our God, I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to pray tomorrow that the frogs go away. So just as Moses says, he prays, God takes the frogs away, many die and many just go back to the Nile, but they're, they're, the problem is solved mostly. And we know the problem was solved because of verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw there was a respite, he hardened his heart. Everyone here has heard of foxhole prayers. In my business, we call them jailhouse prayers. Same thing, okay? Lord Jesus, if you will get me out of jail, I promise I'll change my ways. And then they all do, and crime is solved, and it's, all, it's fixed. Never happens, okay? These foxhole prayers, these jailhouse prayers, they, they, they aren't heartfelt most of the time. I'm not saying never. But we all have our version of these things. 
We all have our version of jailhouse prayers. We pray for God to come through in some way, and we don't necessarily give him the ultimatum, do this or else, do this and I'll do this. We don't phrase it that way because we're Christians. We would never do that. It's wrong to give God an ultimatum like that. But it's in here. It's in here. We pray. We know it's our sin that has caused this problem. We know it's our bad, our wrong that has caused it, which is the case for 99% of people in jail. We know we're struggling because of sin. We know we are struggling because either the sin of someone else or the sin of ourselves, and we pray that God will change it, will fix it, will do something, and then He does. That's the thing. God answers these prayers sometimes. Not always the way we want Him to, but a lot of times He answers them exactly how we want, and then what do we do? Go right back to normal. Nothing changes. We don't even do the heartfelt examination. We don't do the moral inventory. We don't do anything. Well, that's fixed. We got a respite. We don't use that word either. But that's what we do. The plague of frogs specifically made the Egyptians powerless. Literally powerless. They couldn't kill these frogs. They couldn't do anything about it. Powerless to do anything about the problem. Except, again, the magicians. Watch this. Make it worse. And I don't... This is the last one they're able to duplicate, and you got to wonder if Pharaoh just told them, like, stop. Like, all you're doing is making this worse, or if actually they can't do it. But either way, this is the last one they're able to duplicate. And this is what sin does, though. It makes us powerless. Makes us makes our life worse. When we compound sin with other sin, it makes us powerless and unable to change. Yet even in the plague of our own sin, we see the promise that though we may suffer for a little while, it will only be for a little while. Ephesians 3.20 Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. See, Pharaoh just wanted the frogs gone. He wanted the consequences of his sin to be removed, not the actual sin. We, too, are far too short-sighted in our prayers when we are sinful and we pray, God, just take away the consequence of our sin. I don't really want to change the sin because I kind of want to do it again and hope the consequences aren't the same. Please just take away the consequence of my sin and not the sin. And again, we're Christians. We would never phrase it that way. We're praying a heartfelt prayer that God would truly change us. And here's the promise we have from God is that He will if we really pray that. If we really pray, God, remove me from this sin. I'm not saying He'll do it like that because that's not usually how He works. It's usually a slower, He puts you to work pace. But He'll do it. It promises us His power is made perfect in our weakness that He will do far more than we even ask. He will sustain us. He will restore us, confirm us, strengthen us, confirm us. If we will turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. Don't be like Pharaoh who just wanted the frogs gone. Be like Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Look to Jesus. Now we move on to the gnats. We won't read this one due to time. Same Second verse, same as the first. God says, I'm going to send you gnats. And he does. Okay? Let's just, let's just put it how it is. Why? Why? Why do gnats exist? Like, we're all thinking it. Okay? Nothing is more annoying than these things. You want to ruin a cookout? Invite the gnat family. They are terrible. They're always in your periphery. Like, they're never actually really there. They're just over here. And then when you turn to get them, 
they disappear. And then you turn back, right there. They're always around your ears and your eyes. I don't know why they like your face, but that's where they go. Now, the Bible says gnats covered both man and beast. So now they're not just in our periphery. They're all over us. My skin's crawling just thinking about it. Now, tells us that the magicians tried to recreate this one but couldn't. Satan's power is, is, has limits. Okay? God's power does not. That's the, the short lesson there. But even the magicians say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is God. This God they're talking about, he did this. Because we can't recreate it. He clearly did this. The plague here is simple. Gnats may not destroy stuff. Maybe on that scale they could. But usually they don't destroy stuff. But they destroyed the God of Egypt and the God of America called Comfort. There's no Egypt God named Comfort. That's not what I'm saying. But we worship this. Think back. Think of the picture when someone says Egyptian culture that you think of. Rich, affluent, over the top. There's always some dude getting fanned and fed grapes on a pole. Like, this is what they do. They have this rich, affluent lifestyle. They are comfortable because they have so much money. They have the Nile River. They have everything. All the money flows through there. They are, they are relaxing to the uttermost. God plagued the Egyptians and the Israelites, it would seem, with this discomfort. Because this is the last one where it doesn't specifically say that the Israelites were spared. The next one, it says, God says he's not going to do it. To the Israelites. Both of them experienced this discomfort. And here we are still plagued with this today. We constantly, every one of us, desire comfort. Now it may be defined differently in your life than it is mine, but we all want peace. We all want comfort. We all just want to be able to relax and just calm down. And we constantly seek it in places where it doesn't exist. We constantly seek for comfort in places that aren't going to offer us eternal or even long-lasting comfort. But in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Jesus offers us this promise. Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, but not as the world gives peace. My peace I give to you. The world can only offer peace through circumstance. When things are going my way, I'm pretty comfortable. When things are going my way, I'm pretty peaceful. That may not be peaceful for you because my way may interfere with your way. But I'm, a, I'm at peace because things are going my way. That's how the world can offer it, through circumstance. But when we as Christians, when we can have peace of mind and comfort in the midst of chaos, suffering, persecution, a pandemic, death, pain, all the sin around us, all the sin within us, when we can have peace, not with the sin, but peace in the midst of all of that, we have to look at that and go, that's the finger of God. That's not the world offering me comfort. That's not the world going the way I want it to. Anyone want to raise their hand and say 2020 went just like they planned? Woo, that's what I had planned. I plan on spending six months in my house. No one, okay? No one would say that. It's the finger of God when Christians can have peace and comfort in that. It's the finger of God when a child dies at day 70, like a few weeks ago. And the dude gives the, the, one of the best sermons I've ever heard about how God is good. That peace, that's the finger of God. That's the comfort we should seek. Both the world and Christ promise this. Promise peace, promise comfort. 
Only Christ keeps his promise. Don't settle for circumstantial versions. This brings us to the last plague of the day. There's six more after this, though. <laughs> Chapter 8, verse 20, we will read this one. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Right there, that implies God that Pharaoh's still worshiping all these Nile gods because he's still showing up at the Nile every morning. Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else... If you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants, your people, into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground in which they stand. But that on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh, into the servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. And Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you. I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh, prayed to the Lord. The Lord did as Moses asked, removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained. Praise Jesus, hallelujah, I wish that was the case now. But not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. We all saw that part coming at the end there. So we see God use the ground to bring about the swarms of gnats. He turned the dust into gnats. Obviously the Nile involved water. Now we see God attacking from the air. This is, again, not accidental. God is purposely revealing himself as the God over all creation from every angle. There is no escape. There is no, oh, well, I'm going to be over here where God doesn't have control. There is no place such as this. God is in charge of all of it. So, oh, you have a God that's in charge of that? I'll get that too. I have dominion over that too. Because as we'll see in the other six, there's all these other land, sea, and all like all of these other angles by which God shows them, I'm God over that also. Every summer, I'm amazed by two facts. Flies live like eight minutes, and there's a bazillion of them. I don't know how this is the case. Sermon prep secret again, I googled, flies actually live 28 days. So I was wrong about that. But I had to leave that in there because I'm still always astounded. How are there so many of these things? They're all over the place. They're everywhere. Now I multiply that by like a bazillion, and this is what you have here. I mean, it says that the flies ruined the land in which they lived. I don't even know what they do in order to do that. I, I, the flies have never torn down my house. They just annoy me, right? But this is, this is where they're at. They actually may have overlapped with the gnats. We don't have any record here that says the gnats went away. It just says that flies came in. So... I, I don't know, but either way, it either overlapped or came right on the back of the gnats. This plague drives Pharaoh to the brink yet again, and he offers Moses a compromise. He says to Moses, fine, go worship your God. 
but do it here and then get back to work. Okay, take your three days, call it a vacation, and then go back to work. But Moses gives us the answer that we all need in 2021. When the devil or the culture or anyone offers a compromise of our worship of our God, this is what we should say or think or whatever. Not that we have to go the three days journey, but Moses says we must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. Moses was unwilling to compromise because God had given him a command, you go three days journey in the wilderness and worship me, serve me there. He didn't say, figure out what Pharaoh will give you, give him a good negotiation, figure it out and do whatever he says. No, no, no. Go three days in the wilderness. Do it that way. The plagues of this world now even seem innumerable. They seem undefeatable. It's like the waves of the sea. They just keep coming. Just as when one's over with, you, you get another one. And that could be widespread like COVID has been for the world. It could be singularly like a bad marriage or a sick child or a death in the family or a bill you can't pay. But these plagues, they just keep coming and coming and coming. This world and the prince of the power of the air is relentlessly pursuing you to turn away from the worship of the true God the way he crafted it. To simply worship anything else, anyone else, at all. It doesn't have to be worship G the devil. It's just don't worship Jesus. But we have to look at them. We must stand strong in the midst of that and say with Moses, no, 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 no. I'm going to worship God as he tells us. And the way that he tells us is that there is no compromise. What Pharaoh was offering was some sort of hybrid religion. What, you can do the stuff, just don't do it where he tells you to do it. Just do it here instead. And Moses is unwilling to do that. Culture right now is offering you that offer. Right now. Worship your God. I Call it whatever you want. Yahweh. Just call it Jesus if you want. But don't you dare do it if we tell you you're bigoted for it. Don't you dare do it if you are going to say Jesus is the only way. You, just, you say Jesus is your way. Okay? You say that's your person you worship. But don't you dare tell us that we're going to hell if we don't. Okay? They're offering us the same compromise that Pharaoh is offering. It doesn't take a theologian to see those parallels. Just remove the flies and insert social media. Take the gnats out, put in politics. Remove the Nile and imagine your bank account is empty tomorrow like that. How would you react? All the while, though, while all of these things are happening... If you go on social media, if you watch the news, or if you look at your bank account, even if it's not empty, you still think the world's coming crashing down. All the while, the world's promising you, we got the answer, we got the answer, we got the answer, comfort, peace, we got the answer, we'll give it to you, you will prosper if you will simply follow the way of the world. Yeah, worship Jesus, blah, 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 but follow the ways of the world. Only to over and over and over and over again, just like Pharaoh break its promise. Just when you start believing, oh, it's different this time. Even Moses notices, right? He's like, look, Pharaoh, I'm going to agree to this. But don't be changing your mind again and cheat again tomorrow. We, we've seen this pattern already. We're only on number four. And yet you're, you're already causing a pattern to break out. We are in the midst of a plague right now of culture offering us this. But what does Jesus tell us in Matthew 16? The way to follow him? Take up your cross. 
Take up your cross and follow him. And he doesn't say in the midst of culture or the way culture would have you to do that. No, 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 no. You take up your cross in spite of what culture is going to tell you. You see, we think we're in the worst plague of time, but our parents thought that. Your parents thought that. Their parents thought that. Everybody's parents, grandparents thought, this, it'll never get worse. And please hear me, I'm starting to think we're actually the right, the ones that are right, because I'm like, it ain't going to get much worse than this. But it, it will, because this is just the way that it goes. But even in the midst of that, we must not waver. We must not concede. We must not compromise. Jesus is the only way. James 1.12 tells us, though, it promises us, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Unlike Pharaoh in this world, God keeps his promises. You will receive the crown of life. The one true God will make sure of it if you remain steadfast as he tells us. You see, the one true God demands worship. He demands utmost devotion. There is no compromise. There is no halfway. There is no riding the fence. But in the end, oh, in the end, he promises that he will be our source of life, unlike the Nile River or your bank account. He will be the source of freedom from sin, unlike the respite this world, the temporary, not long-lasting at all respite that this world offers. He will be our source of comfort and peace, unlike our circumstances that lie to us all the time about, this is the time. This is the time you'll have peace. No, it's not until you turn to Jesus. And unlike all of those fake promises the world gives us, he will then crown us with the crown of eternal life. And this is why we turn our worship from the plagues of the Old Testament to Jesus, to devote ourselves to him, because 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why through him we utter our amen to God for his glory, because God keeps his promises. Let's turn to Jesus this morning. Pray with me.